Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to another episode of Searching for It. On July 4th, 1845, Henry David Thoreau packed up his belongings and moved out of his home in Concord, Massachusetts. At this point, Thoreau was already a budding young author. He'd been published in a few journals and had some big ideas lying latent in his mind. But Thoreau wasn't headed for the big city, far from it. Thoreau's unlikely destination was a small and modest cabin he'd built for himself in a piece of woodland, just a few miles outside of Concord. And not only this, but Thoreau did all this alone. He was determined to live as simple a life as possible, with just his thoughts for company. And Thoreau's not the only big thinker to have shed his belongings and set up camp in nature. In the last episode, for example, we talked about Jack Kerouac, who responded to his high-octane and hedonistic road trips across the state with Neil Cassidy by taking a summer job as a fire lookout atop Desolation Peak. Kerouac had no face-to-face contact with a single human being all summer long, and spent his time performing daily chores, writing and meditating. And this wasn't the result of any drug-induced craziness after his adventures with Cassidy. No, this was a carefully chosen choice to further his self-development. And equally, Chris McCandless of the biographical book Into the Wild equally he did more or less the same thing. Upon graduating from Emory University, McCandless sold almost all of his possessions and set off hiking alone down the Alaskan Stampede Trail with just the bag on his back. But although these guys were retreating from the world, none of them were trying to escape anything in particular. They all led pleasant lives with people who cared about them, they had everything going for them, and they were all clearly talented people with bags of potential. They could have all joined the rat race and come out as winners, they could have led successful lives and contribute great things by staying in society, and I'm sure they all knew that. But I don't think that their choice to leave society was in spite of their talent and brilliance. Rather, I think it was actually the talent and brilliance that allowed them to see that there was something very important lacking from their lives, something that needed changing, and it was this that prompted them to leave society behind them. And this thing that I think Thoreau, Kerouac and McCandless all had in common was a desire to live their lives deliberately. So you might have heard the term living deliberately used in a few different contexts. If any of you are particularly interested in interior design and following those latest trends, you might have come across the idea of building your home deliberately and the idea of minimalism. So this is all about stripping back on all the junk you don't need and keeping just the bare essentials in your home. I gather that minimalism is pretty popular right now, and there's a cool Netflix documentary about it actually. And even in things like marketing and graphic design, it seems pretty trendy to make minimalistic logos and the like. But it's essentially the idea of removing everything non-essential in order to magnify the effect of what you do choose to keep. And in a similar context, life coaches and motivational speakers you'll see on YouTube talk about living deliberately and the sense of making yourself more productive and efficient. For these guys, living deliberately consists in spending your time and energies doing the things that matter most for you and will make you as productive as possible in the long run. And the steps to living deliberately in this sense would likely be something like stop scrolling through your Facebook timeline for 30 minutes a day, stop mindlessly binging through entire Netflix seasons, and maybe pick up that book that's been sat on your bedside table for the last three months. What these different senses of the word have in common is that living deliberately essentially involves purging all the crap in your life that wastes your time and your potential, whether this is junk in your bedroom closet or bad habits that eat away at your time every day, and keeping only that which really adds some kind of positive value to your life. It's really all about streamlining your life, like doing a big spring clean or running a program on a computer that deletes all the temporary files that slow down your processing speed. But living deliberately in the true sense isn't just something you do every now and then. 
It's not like those people who slowly pile on the pounds throughout the year and then intensively diet to get their summer body. No, it's more like a continuous and deliberate lifestyle choice that you apply to your day-to-day life. Now, for the eagle-eyed listeners, there might seem like a contradiction in what I just said there. So if it was a desire to live deliberately that led Thoreau, Kerouac and McCandless into the wild, and if living deliberately is supposed to be a long-term lifestyle choice, then why were their visits to nature merely temporary? So, for example, Thoreau never intended to spend the rest of his life in Walden. He came back to Concord after two years, and his cabin was only just outside of Concord anyway. Meanwhile, Kerouac's adventure only lasted 63 days in a single summer. McCandless, to be fair, is a bit of an exception, because he never did return from his adventure. But this was only because he passed away in the Alaskan wilderness, having accidentally eaten poisonous berries. And besides, his expeditions were broken up by different stays in different towns and communities across America anyway. I think that what this apparent contradiction highlights is a crucial distinction between living in solitude and living deliberately. So while living deliberately is all about carefully choosing and being deliberate in everything you do, solitude on the other hand involves removing yourself from society altogether and focusing all of your attention on your own life and your own way of being. It's important to recognise that these are separate ideas. You know, you can live deliberately without living in solitude. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who'd argue that living deliberately would certainly involve spending quality time with our loved ones, for example. But at the same time, the ideas of solitude and living deliberately are definitely complementary ideas. And there are good reasons why Thoreau, Kerouac and McCandless's ideas to live deliberately all involved periods of time spent in solitude. As we discussed in the last episode, when Kerouac lived alone on Desolation Peak, he was able to focus all of his attentions on those activities most important to him. So at the time, Kerouac was experimenting with Zen Buddhism, and he used this opportunity to try and live as authentic a Buddhist lifestyle as possible. Without all the distractions of San Francisco and New York, Kerouac was able to focus on himself, the idea being that he could then take the lessons he learned with him when he returned back to society. And in the same vein, when Thoreau walked into the woods, he knew he'd be coming back eventually, but by living alone he was able to reconnect with nature and with himself, And then, when he was to return to society, he could readjust his life in order to take the best bits of society and recognise those other bits which slow him down and hinder his self-development. I think you can see periods of time spent in solitude as a useful tool to then allow you to continue living deliberately when you go back to society. But this doesn't necessarily mean that living deliberately needs to involve spending the rest of your days in a remote cabin in the forest. And it's unfortunate that Thoreau in particular is often misinterpreted on this point. A lot of people criticised Thoreau for being inauthentic in his life in the woods. You know, he often had guests over to his cabin, he wasn't in complete solitude, and he famously had a habit of wandering into Concord and dumping his laundry at his mother's house. But as I say, to criticise Thoreau for this is to miss the point. His ambition was to live deliberately and not to live in utter solitude. And, of course, Thoreau did eventually return to society and try to apply his notion of living deliberately to his normal life. And here, I think there are two main ways in which we can take the lessons that Thoreau taught us in order to apply them to our own lives. These two ways correspond with what I said earlier about the two main ways through which we might have already come across the idea of living deliberately. Firstly, in terms of what we own, in the sense of adopting a kind of minimalism with respect to our possessions. And secondly, in terms of what we do, and actively managing our lives and carefully determining how we spend our days. So to start with living deliberately in terms of our possessions... I think there's actually quite a lot going on beneath the surface of this idea, and probably more than you'd initially think. 
So when Thoreau talks about shedding your non-essential possessions and keeping only what you need, Thoreau isn't just saying that there's no point in a lot of the things we own. He's going further than that. He's actually saying that owning too much can be actively damaging. Or to put that another way, it's not just the case that many of our pointless possessions have no value at all. They might actually have a negative value. Now, of course, there is a limit to this. There's a base minimum of the amount of possessions that you need in order to live a reasonably comfortable life. So you'll need shelter, you'll need some kind of basic furniture, some cooking equipment, the kind of things that life would be a real struggle without. But let's grant you've got all that sorted. You're living in a wooden shack like the one Thoreau lived in, with one table, three chairs and a nice garden. Now imagine that by some good luck you've been given some luxury item for free. What well, common sense would tell us that's a really good thing. But Thoreau didn't see it this way. He wrote, I see young men, my townsmen, whose misfortune is to have inherited farms, houses, barns, cattle and farming tools, for these are more easily acquired than got rid of. Now, I'm sure 99% of the residents of Concord at the time would have been over the moon should they have been graced with their own free farm. But through Thoreau's eyes, an inherited farm is never truly free. It comes with a great price of the time necessarily spent tending to the farm and working on it. Thoreau describes these farmers serfs of the soil. Yeah, they might think they've come across a bargain, but really they've just lost a ton of time that they could have spent pursuing their own passions. The farm they were given has come to own them. And Thoreau gives a further example in a witty little comment where he writes, I had three pieces of limestone on my desk, but I was terrified to find that they required to be dusted daily when the furniture of my mind was all undusted still, and I threw them out of the window in disgust. Now, one might think Thoreau's being a bit dramatic here. I mean, how much time can you even spend looking after a small piece of limestone? But let's not get bogged down in the limestone here. Thoreau's point is that you can't just look at your possessions in terms of how much money you spent on them. It's really important that you think about how much of your time they take up. This thought's more obvious in Thoreau's farm example. So you might think it's great you've inherited this farm, but if you're going to make anything of it, that's going to be a lot of your time gone tending to it, and it's not always clear that the trade-off's worth it. Well, I'm not sure how many farmers listen to this podcast, so even Thoreau's farm example might not really resonate, but I think his point applies to anything you own that requires some kind of maintenance. I mean, think of people who get a big promotion and move out of their terraced three-bedroom house into a six-bedroom mansion. Well, that's all very well, but now you lost a big chunk of your life spent cleaning the whole place. And that's, of course, not to mention the time you spent earning the money to buy it in the first place. And this, too, isn't a point that Thoreau glosses over. For Thoreau, it's really important that we're aware of the cost of our possessions, not just in terms of the amount of money that we spent on them, but in terms of the amount of time we spent earning that money in the first place. This isn't how we normally talk about cost. You know, if I go to work in a fancy new shirt and my colleague asks how much it cost, I might say that it cost £100, but I would look really weird if I said it cost me 10 hours. But for Thoreau, it's more accurate if we define cost in terms of the amount of time we exchange for it, because it's the time we spend working that gives us our money in the first place. Last episode I spoke a little bit about Fight Club, and I think there's another line from the character Tyler Durden that sums up the attitude of being deliberate about our possessions nicely, when he says, the things you own end up owning you. I think the context in which Tyler meant this was in reference to consumerism and the addiction to buying things and owning things. In today's world, this brings to mind modern technologies like iPhones and social media apps and video games, 
And it's scary how much work goes into literally making these things addictive. I remember reading, for example, that the liking system on Facebook was carefully designed to give you a small dopamine rush each time your post gets liked, which wires you to want to keep coming back to see if you've got more likes and to spend more and more time on posting better content. And then the question of living deliberately becomes pertinent here, when you come to question, will that new pair of jeans make me happy? Will spending an extra £5,000 so my car can go 140 miles an hour rather than 130 miles an hour add any significant value to my life? When you ask these questions, you see the importance of living deliberately doesn't just consist in focusing your attention on the most important things, but also in not letting yourself waste your time pursuing things of no real worth, and not allowing yourself to become addicted to things and ultimately letting your things own you. And then of course, as well as carefully managing what you own, if you want to truly live deliberately, you'll also need to make sure that what you do and how you spend your time is deliberate. There are different ways in which you construct your life to live deliberately, some more extreme than others. I have one friend in particular, actually, who told me their boss who organises their day and books meetings literally down to the second. So he'd have a one-to-one catch-up with them that was due to last three minutes and 40 seconds before they spent 80 seconds walking to their next meeting, which was also whittled down to the second. And for those of you who've seen the TV series Mr Robot, and if you haven't, you really should, there's a character called White Rose who equally obsesses over time. They organise their day down to the second and squeeze all that they possibly can out of their day. There's certainly something to be said for this idea. I mean, we only have a certain amount of time to live. Everyone says life's too short, so you might as well make the most of it. But I'd be surprised if many listeners found the lifestyle taken to this extreme to be particularly compelling. And it's by no means a necessary component of living deliberately. Thoreau himself, for example, was definitely not interested in pushing himself to this extreme. I think Thoreau would have probably perceived White Rose's lifestyle as an abomination of his idea of living deliberately. Instead, and maybe surprisingly, Thoreau actually devoted large chunks of his life in Walden to just sitting and being in nature because he enjoyed, in his words, having a fine margin to his life. Equally, in Dharma Bums, Kerouac talks about practising Wu Wei, which is the Chinese term for the practice of doing nothing. Now, Wu Wei doesn't just mean cocooning yourself in your bedsheets and staring at the ceiling, wasting the day away. I think Kerouac's referring more to contemplating and meditating, to learning to be comfortable just existing, just being, doing nothing and not becoming overly distracted by all the frills of the world. And on this note, just as we distinguished earlier between living deliberately and living in solitude, I also think it's helpful to distinguish between living deliberately and being productive, or being efficient. Just as solitude is by no means an essential feature of living deliberately, but in the right situation it can help you to live deliberately, I think the same can be said for productivity. Although managing your day to spend as much time as possible on the things you're passionate about can help you be more deliberate in your life, You can equally live deliberately by spending large chunks of your life just chilling, doing nothing. The key point if you want to live deliberately is that you spend your life in the way that you really want to spend it. Whether this involves being hyper-efficient in working towards some project, or just sitting outside with nature. And what you mustn't do is spend too much time toiling away at activities which you have no interest in and no passion for. And this is exactly what Thoreau managed to achieve. He wrote that by becoming self-efficient, building his own house, growing his own crops. He only had to work for six weeks a year to meet his minimal expenses, leaving the rest of his time for study and just enjoying himself. 
For those listeners who tuned into the last episode, this might remind you of Jaffe Ryder, and this is exactly the lifestyle that he too managed to achieve, by adopting a minimalistic approach to his life that allowed him to spend as much time as possible on studying and living as an authentic Zen Buddhist. But I'm sure a lot of listeners will think, sure, it sounds lovely in theory to live like Thoreau or Jaffe and work just six weeks a year, but I've got a job, responsibilities. I couldn't just walk into the woods. And of course, that's a completely reasonable response, and Thoreau isn't saying that we should all just give up our careers. Thoreau's saying something much more sensible, which is just that we should think long and hard about whether what we're doing is really the best way of spending our lives, and that does include our jobs. As I mentioned earlier, Thoreau gives us a toolkit by which we can determine whether or not we're really living our lives as deliberately as possible. And this involves looking at the cost of things we buy, in terms of the amount of time we exchange for them. So to demonstrate this point, Thoreau recalls a friend asking him, Henry, you love to travel. Why don't you work more so you can afford to buy a car? But Thoreau being the kind of guy he was, obviously wasn't just going to accept this at face value. Thoreau worked out that if he were to travel from Concord to Fitchburg, for example, this would cost around 90 cents, or one day's wages in those times. So to get to Fitchburg, he'd need to work for a day, then wait for the next transport link, which would probably take him until the next day. But if he were to just walk to Fitchburg, he could do that in a day and get there faster than he would have done if he'd worked. So this whole work-so-you-can-buy-things deal doesn't really seem very effective. Now, in today's world, this might not be such a strong argument. Travel's much cheaper now, and if I wanted to travel halfway across the UK on a train, I'd get there much sooner by working and getting a train than by walking there. But let's take another example that might stick better in today's world. Maybe going out for dinner. So sure, it's a pleasant way to spend an evening to go out on a dinner date with your partner. But let's say that this dinner cost you £80, or 8 hours work at £10 an hour. Does it still seem worth it? Was it worth sacrificing 8 hours of your life for this date? If you're then going to compare this with cooking a nice dinner together at home, this would also be a really nice evening well spent, but you could do this without having to work the 8 hours that you'd have had to work to save money for your dinner date. Or another example would be, when you begin working in order to afford more things, in order to get to and from your job each day, you need to spend even more money, and you get into a vicious cycle of having to pay for more and more things in order to get by. One of my all-time favourite quotes is from Ellen Goodman, who once said, Normal is getting dressed in clothes that you buy for work, driving through traffic in a car that you're still paying for, in order to get to a job that you need so you can pay for the clothes, the car, and the house that you leave empty all day in order to afford to live in it. Again, this is an example in which it might seem that the choice we make to trade in our life hours for money through our work doesn't seem like a very deliberate choice, because all we're spending our money on is the things we need in order to work in the first place. You might not agree with every application of this argument, and of course there'll be countless circumstances in which it will be rational to spend time working in order to afford important things. But the important message we can still take from Thoreau is that it's only worth our time to work to the extent that A, the money we earn will save us more life hours down the line, or B, to the extent that what we buy with our earnings really is worth the amount of time we sacrificed by working for it. Thoreau really invites us to consider, why am I working so hard? Are the rewards I'm getting worth the time I'm trading? Often the answer will be yes, but equally I'm sure the answer will often be no as well. But we don't have to limit the idea of living deliberately to our working lives, though. We can also stop and ask, am I spending my free time in the best way I possibly can? 
Are we really making the most of our time on this earth when we binge watch Netflix series? Or is there something more valuable we could spend our time on? And I mentioned Netflix here for a reason, just as I alluded to social media earlier. From my own personal experience, when I've made a conscious effort to live more deliberately, these have been two of the first aspects of my life to be purged. There's not enough time in each day to do each one of the things I want to do, not enough time in my life to read all the books I want to read, the amount of time I want to spend doing these things exceeds the amount of time that I have, so I found that I've had to prioritise. And deleting social media apps from my iPhone was a big help. This gave me at least an extra half an hour a day or so to make this podcast actually happen. And I'm sure the number will be a lot higher for some people. There's a Daily Telegraph article from 2018 entitled A Decade of Smartphones, which found that the average 15 to 24 year old spends four hours a day on their phone. When I was studying for my master's, I had a fairly young lecturer who said he's never owned a mobile phone. And I'm not suggesting that everyone goes to this extreme. But if you do the maths, by not having a phone, he'll have saved an extra two entire months a year compared with the average 15 to 24 year old. And when you throw an extra hour a day into the mix as well, taken from a daily episode on Netflix, the extra time really does make a difference in the long term. I've spoken to a lot of people who have some passion or some project that they want to pursue. Maybe it's filming a movie, recording an album or writing a book. But they never put their ideas to practice because they don't have time. But then they'll come home from work and scroll on their iPhone until they have dinner and watch some TV series until they go to bed. We might not want to sack in our career. We might not want to shed all of our possessions and live in a handmade cabin in the wilderness. But I do think that there's something that each one of us can take from Thoreau in the idea of living deliberately regardless. What this is all about is taking control of your life and living it in the way that you want. We don't have much time on this planet, and there's no use in spending it sleepwalking through unquestioned habits that add very little value to our lives. By turning off autopilot, we gain the power to take control of our lives and actively shape our reality. We might not attain instant transcendence from living deliberately, and nor does it provide us with a purpose in itself, but what it does do is facilitate us to focus on our passions and spend our time more wisely than we would have done otherwise. So in light of this, I'd like to end with a closing thought. Imagine that before you came into the world, there was some world of disembodied souls all waiting to be assigned a body. You're not sure if you'll ever be given a human host, and whether you'll ever be given the chance to walk on this earth. But just like those today who fantasise about what they spend their lottery winnings on, you imagine the life you'd like to lead if you were ever given the chance to live a human life on earth. What is it you dream of doing? And what can you do today to start making that life that you'd want to live become a reality? In the next episode, we're going to move on to a different theme. We're going to talk about arguably the most philosophically significant band in history, the Grateful Dead, and look at the insights that both they and their group of deadhead fans taught us about this thing that we call it. And don't forget, if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to Searching For It. And if you have access to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a short review would really be a massive help. Or otherwise, if you'd like to support the show, please head to www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Thank you.